Hey lovelies, before we get started, I really just wanted to thank you for your response to my last episode and also to the Ready Topper as a whole. It's nearly sold out as of when this episode goes live and I'm really just so grateful for your support and the message behind it. If you listened to the last to the last episode, you know that it was a little uncomfortable for me to put out in the world and I'm just really glad that I did. So if you want to take a new look at the uh, newest closet staple with the couture details that everyone is crushing over, head over to impactfashionnyc.com. And if you haven't yet listened to last week's solo episode on the process of creating it, I highly recommend you go back in your feed and give it a listen. According to all of you, it's a good one. So there's that's the best endorsement I can give. In the meantime, enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with someone who's always been fascinated by how things were made. She shares the choice to turn certain hobbies into a business and leave others just as they are, why she thinks it's important for anyone who can to grow their food, and how the way she cares for her kids has changed as they've gotten older. I've had the pleasure of becoming friendly with Ahuva Gottdiener over the last few years. She is my kind of girl. Fiercely passionate about what she does, even if others around her just see a lady with chickens and hippie bread. I marvel at her efficiency and connection to the things around her. And honestly, I always just have a great time chatting with her. I don't think I've changed that much. That's the truth. Um, I always enjoyed knowing and finding out where everything comes from. Like, what was the original way that that was made? Like we used to go sometimes on vacation to these old villages. He used to watch the people doing the spinning of the wool and how they turned the wheat into bread and like everything. I love like getting back to like as basic as possible and finding out. I used to watch the potters with the wheels and the weaving of the cloth. Oh, I love that stuff. I love that stuff. Like that was my dream to one day like grow up and be able to like work in one of those places and do all the stuff the old way, the way it was always done. Um, so it was a natural progression to like, try to figure out all those things as I got older and do all those things I actually had when I was somewhere between 14 and 16 I can't figure it out and I didn't save a copy of it which is a pity I had a drawing of mine um, published in National Geographic World magazine which was the National Geographic Kids magazine in those days of my compost bin it was like Earth Day what things do you do for the planet so I sent in a picture of our compost bin and it was published I, that was like very big for me I was very excited about that because yes I composted even then I was fascinated by the idea of like you could just like throw all these this like garbage into a bin and turn it and eventually you would have fertilizer for your garden um, so I just kept doing all of these things and um, always um, growing things like my baking of sourdough bread was basically a natural progression of that at some point we went when I was in seminary I think to one of these places in Artist Row where they like show you how they made pizza and they mix the flour and the water together and they said and then it just becomes pizza so I went back to my dorm room my little toaster oven and I mixed flour and water together and tried to make bread and it was a disaster because I missed a very important step somehow. And that was like, that you need something like a culture to leaven it. I guess you could just leave the dough out for a couple of days in the Mediterranean climate and maybe eventually it would start to rise. But and so I, I was always fascinated, but I tried to figure that out. So eventually when I found out about sourdough, I was like, ah, oh, this is the original way to make bread. And that's why I started making it because I thought that was cool. Then I realized how good it tasted and I kept baking it. But 
Um, like I wanted to learn how to sew and it wasn't something I learned when I was in school. That wasn't something that we first taught once I was already married with two kids. Um, in my 20s, I learned to sew because I wanted to know how to sew my, sew my own clothing and design it. And the, learning to sew wasn't enough. So I went to Parsons and I studied pattern design and pattern making and because I wanted to be able to like make my own patterns, not just like use the patterns that they were giving me. Um, for a while I did that. Um, I designed and I sold um, clothing. I had two different businesses <laughs> doing that, but I found that I loved it more as a hobby than as a business. Interesting. What made you talk to me about that? I'm curious about, you know, cause it's, cause your business, what you do now through homegrown crochet, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Cause I find it fascinating and I have you captive now for the next 45 minutes. So you're going to answer my questions, but the, um, what you, your business is also your hobby. Now, I think it's something that you very much enjoy doing. So how did that differ when it came to, you know, sewing and designing? How was that something, you know, what made you decide that this needs to stay non-monetized? I guess you could say. Because unlike you, and you did it the smart way, I was doing all the production myself. And I found that I love the designing aspect of it. And if I was, could make one only, for, like for myself, that was great. Or for, my, or for my kid at the time when they were babies, I used to sew for them, now I don't. Um, but once it became like a factory where I was sitting and sewing the same thing over and over and over again, multiple times, I didn't enjoy it anymore. That, I think that's what it is. But it's interesting because like with my bread, I'm shaping the same lo like loaf over and over and over again but I still enjoy it. I enjoy like the tactile feeling of the dough. I think it's like, like playing with Play-Doh for grown-ups basically. <laughs> um, but somehow the sewing, I just didn't enjoy it. Doing it over and over again, that was different. Um, if I could just design and send it off somewhere, maybe I would have kept doing that, but I didn't realize that that was a possibility unless you were doing a huge line of thousands and thousands of pieces. Like you're living my dream in a way. Now I moved past that and moved on to other things. But what you're doing, like you're designing and you get you make a run of whatever, like the amount that you order. It doesn't have to be thousands and thousands and thousands made overseas. And then you get to move on to designing something else. But I, it's, I love watching you for that reason, because it's well, like. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. And yeah, I can imagine that running your own factory <laughs> or essentially the truth is, is that I started out doing exactly what you were doing is that when I, I started out doing custom gowns and dresses and alterations. And the definition of that was me just sitting at a sewing machine for, you know, 12, 16 hours a day much more than that usually. And it was realizing that that is not, well, aside from the fact that it basically broke me, but it's also just not scalable um, to do it. And I, and I realized that I had this chance where I could either, I could hire seamstresses and I could basically build out a workshop in a factory, or I could pivot in and outsource the production entirely. And that's what I decided to do. And turns out pretty okay. So, 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 you know, yeah, it's every, like everyone kind of goes through those stages of figuring out what works for them and what doesn't. So what made you get interested in like, so you've always been interested in like growing things and baking things and, and sourdough and, and all of that. Can you first give me kind of like an overview of what you do? Um, because there's so many little facets of homegrown kosher and they are all equally fascinating to me. So just talk me through a little bit about what you do. And, and I'm curious how you got interested in, you know, each of those little aspects and how you combined it. So I'll move backwards in order to do that to when I was 14 and I really, really wanted chickens. Well, not 14. But was it? As, as most 14 year olds do. I was 12. I think. So let's move back again. Let's redo that. Um, I, it starts when I was 12 and I really, really wanted chickens. What happened is my brother brought one home from school. It was so cute. And I fell in love with it. And 
I made a whole campaign about how we're going to keep it. And I drew out a plan. I'm going to build a coop and I'm going to take care of it. And I'm going to get other ones to keep it company. And my mother was like, nope, nope, no way. So my father had always grown things. He loved growing things. Even when we used to live in Flatbush when I was much younger, and he grew things like the entire backyard was full of planters. And every spot of dirt had something growing from corn to tomatoes to peppers, to everything you could grow in that little tiny postage stamp sized yard. And then we moved to Muncie and we grew like on a much grander scale. And my father loves, has what I call an experimental farm where he wants to try to grow everything that you can grow that's useful. So he grows cotton for his wicks for his menorah. And he has an estrog tree and a banana tree. All these things, by the way, have to be brought inside in the winter because they are not native to New York State. Um, he has actually bananas growing on his banana tree now. He has a pomegranate growing on his little mini pomegranate tree. He showed it to me yesterday. He's very proud. Um, <laughs> I was ne not necessarily interested in growing those things, but when I moved out and had my own place. We started growing things first in planters, just tomatoes and cucumbers and squash and things like that. And then we got a bigger garden. And I, cause I always loved growing things. I wanted to grow things. The chickens did not work out because my mother did not let that, but I always wanted them. So for my 30th birthday present, I got a chicken coop and chickens. That's 10 years ago now, another 10 years. We were li not living where we are now. We were living on a much smaller lot in Spring Valley, which is like semi-urban I guess you could call it um but Spring Valley is not semi-urban where I lived it was they're like two family houses on small lots um yeah it, I don't know my, New York, my New, New York City is showing my New York City is showing <laughs> compared to what I have now the lot was like an eighth of the size okay but you still had a big house. backyard you had a place to put a chicken coop basically there was a place for a chicken coop place for a rabbit hutch and a place for a shed <laughs> Yeah, so that's not that's not semi-urban, honey. Right. If you could okay. if you root for chickens, rabbits, and a shed. <laughs> that's why I said semi semi. People tell me, like, even if they live, like, oh, I have such a small yard. I'm like, your yard is plenty big, you can do things with it. Our garden was in the front yard, right in the front. People have like flower beds and stuff. That's because that's where the sun was. So we fenced oh, in the area okay. and we had a garden there eventually. Um, and I had my compost over there because I was like, I couldn't like, how could you throw out these vegetable peels and these you know, all this thing, if you could turn it into something for your garden, it's like such a waste. I got my husband into that mindset also, and we call them the compost police now. So if somebody by mistake will put one apple peel or a core into the garbage, help this shit out and put it in the compost. That's awesome. <laughs> so for your 30th point. birthday, you get chickens yep. and that like, and you just enjoy having them and raising them. And I love that. I was, I just love the idea of having them. We also had rabbits because my kids, when they were much younger, campaigned for them and their Waste happens to make the best fertilizer because it doesn't carry pathogens, so it doesn't need to be composted. It also doesn't do nitrogen burn on cause nitrogen burn on the plants. So, um, so we kept the rabbits for that. They're also cute. They're I did not rabbits. understand a word of what you just said. Explain to me, like on five, what what you're talking okay, about. So the rabbits, um, we got them originally because my kids wanted them. We keep them outside because I happen to be quite allergic to pets, <laughs> so we have no indoor furry pets. Um, keep them in a safe, proper hutch outside. Their waste, the rabbit's waste, they're like little round pellets. Poop. Um, You're talking about poop. They're poop. Okay. Uh, it doesn't carry pathogens somehow the way that their digestive system works. Other types Wait, of poop has pathogens manure. in it? Manure can carry pathogens. So from like so when you say manure, you mean like from cows? Cows, um, sheep, horses. Um, Got it. most mammals manure can carry pathogens. And you don't want to put that directly on your plants. You have to compost it first. So the bacteria and things like that die and then you can use it in your garden 
Got it. Rabbit's waste, not only does it not do that, somehow other types of manure can have too much nitrogen. If you put that directly on plants, even if you're not putting it on plants that are food plants, the worry is that that can cause a, what's called nitrogen burn. So if you compost it, you mix it with other things. You mix it with the vegetable peels and some leaves and other things. So it sort of like evens that out. So but what's nitrogen burn? Is can, that like it can ruin the plant if there's too much nitrogen? Too in much the... nitrogen. It's like too much of a good thing. <laughs> it like causes like okay. almost a burn on the plant. Okay. It's like too many cakes or too much cakes or, you know, cakes and cookies are delicious, but if that's all you eat all day, you'll get a stomachache. Got probably. it. So. Okay. So, so you have the rabbits and they have very useful poop. Which is right. So great. eventually, I really wanted to be able to do like more bigger garden and more, but we didn't have the space. Um, eventually, we moved, not because of that, but that was a nice perk. And we have much more space right now. Um, initially, when we first moved, I went back to planters because I did not have the time or the money to build a new garden fence. And around here, if you don't fence it in, you're basically working for free. That's actually one of my garden consultation clients that I'm telling they don't want to work for free because you're feeding the animals. There's deer and rabbits and ground dogs which will eat everything. So I started with planters on my deck and then eventually I built a fence. Again, the larger fence and put in the same garden beds. We moved them over from where we used to live and I put in more also. Um, I always say that my garden, when I plan my garden in the winter, I always plan for the next season. I think it's so small. I want to be able to plant so many more things. Like I wish I had a bigger garden. Now when I'm actually working in it in the spring and in the summer, I'm like, oh my gosh, my garden is so big. I have so much to do in here. What am I, what was I thinking? So that's how I know it's the right size garden. <laughs> because I have like the two different seasons where I have the two different reactions to the same garden. Um, when I plan gardens for people, which is one of the things that I do, I was actually doing it informally for years. My neighbors and friends would like, I want a garden, I don't know what to plant, I don't know where to do it, how do I build a fence? And I would come down and I'd talk to them and I'd sketch something out for them. And then eventually I realized, you know, I could charge for this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is my expertise and I've been doing this for a very long time. I've been basically growing things all my life uh, and I'm a researcher, that's what I do. So I like, I'm gonna show you, you're, you're gonna describe it to people. This is my bookshelf there are of nonfiction, sorry, nonfiction books about gardening and cooking and bread and all different things. And there's more scattered in different places around the house. Um, so I like to read and find out about everything. Um, now there's the internet. When I first started, that did not exist. Um, but the problem with the internet is like, you don't necessarily know the veracity of the information that you're finding on the internet in random places. So I like to look it up in a source that I trust, like a sort of garden books that I know I can trust. And then it's trial and error, it's doing it for a long time. So I started doing garden consultations for people, um, first only in person, then I realized that it can be done virtually. So I do garden consultations for people virtually all over, um, which is a lot of fun, we've got different climates all over the place. Um, I basically, I can, um, I'll have to describe it because we're doing using words, not show it Joan, to you, but that will help. Um, I, it dep depending on the type of garden. If it's a garden, a lot of people will grow exclusively in planters. I don't need to draw out a plan, but I need to give them a lot of words to explain what to buy, when to plant, how to plant, and they could set up their planters any way that works for them. How but is a planter different from like a standard flower pot? Just so that, is it basically just thing. a big, it's, it's a, a big flower pot, pot right? It's larger. Okay. Yeah. A big just, just to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Okay. So if I'm working yeah. like with planters, let's say on, on a deck or something that, right. or even even in, in, let's say somebody lives in an area where they have a yard, but they're not 
willing yet to commit to like an exact space where they want to put their garden. So I'll say start with planters. If, even if people who live in an area where animals are an issue, I'll direct them towards like an enclosure they can put the planters in to keep the animals from eating out of the planters because they will. And then they then I'll give them instructions which planters to buy, what type of soil to put in it, where to when to plant, where to get the plants, how to plant them, everything like that. It's a lot of work for me typing that all up for them, but there's nothing really to draw out. But when somebody's going to be building a garden, like building beds in the ground and building a fence, then I draw out a plan, draw out two different plans for them. Um, usually, so depending on what it is, sometimes it's all in one plan, but if it's more complicated, I'll draw two different plans. One is a construction plan, shows how to build a fence and how to build the beds. And then the second one will be this year's garden plan for next season exactly after I had discussed with them and it's always a discussion that no two have ever been the same I've done a lot of these and I've never duplicated it because every person wants to grow different things that their family eats I always say grow what you eat and everyone wants to grow different amounts different things like I did a garden consultation for Naomi Nachman she loves tomatoes tomatoes <laughs> uh, that's what she calls <laughs> um she her garden was half tomato plants because that's, because what, that's what they eat right right that's what they eat so that's what she got um i but other people might not want so many but only two tomato plants and more cucumbers and more zucchini or beans or radishes or peas or onions or garlic or depending on what they want to grow i mean there's a lot of different things to grow and i encourage people to do it on a scale that isn't going to become overwhelming for them it's going to be enjoyable and fun that makes sense. I hear that. So the last time that I grew something, I think was when I was in first grade, we all got lima beans and we got to put them on wet paper towels. And then a couple of those sprouted and then a couple of, and then the ones that sprouted got put into plastic cups. And then we kept those in the, on the windowsill for like a week. And then the ones that survived, usually every class ended up with like one or two really sad looking bean plants that didn't end up really doing much. And that was the last time that I have ever grown anything. Um, and I'm, and I don't, I don't know, I don't see it in my future, but who knows, maybe you'll convince me. But what is something, like, do you think that everyone should be growing stuff? And if you think, and if it's something that everyone should be trying, then like, what's, give me like the the idiot proof thing to try or the thing that I could grow or the thing, like what's a really good beginner baseline to get into this whole, you know, just becoming more connected with where our food comes from? Anybody, not everyone should be growing things. If you're living in a basement apartment with no outside access, um, to any sunny area, then you should be just living vicariously through me, basically. Um, and a lot of people like that. One day I'll grow things. Right now it doesn't work for me because trying to grow things on a windowsill that doesn't get much sun is just an exercise of frustration, like the bean plants. But if you had taken those bean plants outside and put them in a planter with enough soil and enough sun, then you probably would have gotten beans. But would so you grow need on to- even. Would we have gotten a tree or like a bush? Or like it depends on what type of beans. There are two types of beans, whole beans and bush beans. It depends on what type of beans those were. Since you bought them in the grocery store, there's no way to know. But if it had been a bush bean, let's say it would have grown, I don't know, about three feet high, and you would have gotten beans. Well, go, go it needs, figure. It needs enough sun, it needs enough soil for its roots, and it needs enough water, and then it would have grown. But so if a person has access access to the outdoors that's sunny then they should be growing something, even if it's just a tom- Why? tomato. Why is it important to, to grow your food? It's, I think it's important to grow it because it connects you to where your food comes from. You appreciate it so much more once you've grown something. And that changes your whole outlook on your food and on the world. For example, one example is people don't generally who live, at least in our area, 
don't like rain. Um, if you live in an area like that is has drought often, you appreciate when it rains and you're excited when it rains. I love watching people in California, it's raining and they're running around all excited. But like here, it's like, oh, it's another rainy day. But what people don't think about is that your food is being grown somewhere near to where you are, a significant percentage of your food. Yes, some things are coming from far away. And that same rainstorm that is ruining your day is also helping your food grow. And it's not just your plant-based food, but animal-based food, those animals eat plants and those plants need to grow. And those need rain in order to grow. I hear that. So that like that appreciation just it changes your outlook on the rain. Yay, it's raining. Maybe you won't say that. I say that. But maybe you'll just be like, okay, I understand that we need the rain. And you just it changes your outlook on life in so many ways. Um, I think it helps you appreciate the seasonality of food. Until you grow, you don't realize why tomatoes that are coming from a more local place taste so much better in August. They just do. Now, if you're buying tomatoes that are grown very far away from you and are just growing like in a greenhouse, they may have the same non-flavor all year round. But once you grow your own tomato, it's a different food. Also cucumbers. People are like, I don't want to grow cucumbers. We don't like cucumbers so much. Like grow a cu one cucumber plant this year and tell me after that that you don't like cucumbers because they taste totally different than the ones because the ones that are grown in the store are grown for storage. Like they can store longer and they can transport longer, not for flavor necessarily. Does that mean that they're that the plants are like treated differently or that the fruits are treated differently? Or is it just like the variety of the plant is hardier and more able to be stored? It's a different variety. There, things that are grown for market are generally a different variety than the ones you can grow at home. They're grown for being able to be looking uniform because when you grow things yourself, you'll notice like if you grow carrots, you'll notice that they come in all different shapes and sizes and you grow cucumbers also. So they want to be as uniform as possible and be able to last a long time in cold storage and transport well. If they get bruised when they bump next to each other in the cardboard box, that, that, then that's a problem. Um, it's different varieties. There are different, there are so many different varieties of plants that farmers over thousands of years that we've been farming have basically do selective breeding. They're like, oh, this cucumber tastes better. So we'll breed, you know, we'll use the seeds of that one to grow the next year's plant. But oh, this one's, if we're not breeding for taste, we're breeding for hardier and more uniform in size, then it's, it's a lot, it's very, it's pretty quick because every year is a new season. So you can, you can change like carrots, for example, weren't all always orange. Originally carrots were white. And then there was one that was a little more orangey. So they bred that until they got more orangey carrots. And um, so- Who decided that like it. orange carrots were better though? I guess, I don't know, some farmer someplace just liked it better? There, there's a lot of different stories about that actually, because originally carrots had been white, but then they were purple and red more often. But then somebody found an orange variety, it was like a mutation and they grew that. and. There's different opinions on that. Some say it was because of the Duke of Orange or something like that. So like that was became a popular patriotic thing to be eating orange carrots. I, I, the real story is it's hard to know because this is a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But now we look at like we think other carrots, other colors of carrots are something exotic, but really carrots come in all colors. Like it's just not that exciting. It's exciting because they're beautiful to look at, but really they came in all colors originally. But the ones that these days that have been developed to be uniform in size and transport well and store well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, tend to be the orange varieties. That's what people got used to. Okay. I hear that. That 
that kind of makes sense. So, okay. So by growing your own food, you become just more connected to where things come from and, and all of that. And it's so interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking that there are, you know, we know that there are certain countries that are just kind of better at this than we are. Um, like I know when I spent a year in Israel, you can go to like, first of all, not, it's weird that like not everything is available all year round, which is so strange. I was actually talking about this with Danielle Renov, who came to America to shoot her cookbook because if she would have done it in Israel, she would have had to wait an entire year to shoot until everything came in season, which is just fascinating that to me, but it's also in a, in a lot of ways, the produce there, it tastes better because it is more local and it is, and it's just, I don't know, is it because it comes from closer places or because what they're growing is just more like in season, like more like kind of a, the equivalent of growing it in your backyard, but on a bigger scale. So seasonal produce does, does taste better. When you eat things that are grown more locally in season, they taste better. Because of what I said, when things have to be grown far, farther away, they're generally, you're going to grow the variety that lasts the longest and is and transports the best, not the one that tastes the best. But if you're growing things closer to you, you can grow a variety that doesn't maybe quite last quite as long, but tastes better. Like I know that butternut squash is much better in the fall. The fall, I'm getting ones that are grown in the United States. In the like in the spring, I'm not. I'm getting ones that are coming from South America, and they're going to grow a variety. First of all, they're going to grow a variety that lasts the longest. Also, they could be quite old. They could have been stored for two or three months already, and just not be as good anymore. When produce is eaten seasonally, it just tastes better, which is why part of the reason I try to eat seasonally myself and cook seasonally. Now, I'm not like 100% doing this because otherwise, I would never eat an avocado because they don't grow around here. And I like avocados and bananas. Bananas also don't grow around here. Right. Um, but as much as possible, uh, I try to do that because first of all, the food tastes better. The nutrients density is higher. They're better for you because they haven't just like in storage, those types of things can start to break down. Even if it looks fine, it won't necessarily have the same nutrient density. But like you said, in Israel, like the cucumbers in Israel taste better. And people say that, oh, the cucumbers in Israel are so good. It's because they're growing varieties that are more delicious and you're getting them in season and they're coming from close by so they taste better right it's it's totally different one of my favorite things to do in israel is to just walk through the shuk walk walk through the marketplace and it's just first and it just smells fantastic and you know when you have stuff that's from there even the dried fruit is so much better because it's coming like you said it's coming from closer places and and all of that i'm curious to know how you got into sourdough like was that just part of all of this like not to get hippy dippy, but like, this is very like connected to earth and like seventies man life. And I love it. And it, a sourdough kind of fits into all of that. Was it just something else that you were interested in how it gets made in its purest form? Exactly. That's what it was. And then once, um, and how many years ago now, 18 years ago, I was watching an episode of baking with Julia. It was on DVD. Um, and she had a guy on who was showing how he makes this bread sourdough and I was like ah that's it now I finally figured out how their bread was originally made so I tried to make it myself and I failed many times and eventually I got it right and then it realized it really tasted good so I kept making it not every week but on and off for years I made it um so what happened is how I started like my Instagram page and everything it goes sort of along with the sourdough so in 2017 I think it was 2017, I would scroll back on my feed and Instagram and see, I decided to start an Instagram page and I called it Homegrown Kosher. And the point of it was to show the gardening, the chickens, all the different things that I do, my cooking, seasonal cooking and eating, and also my sourdough. It was just one of the things I was showing. And I realized very quickly that the sourdough 
anytime I posted a picture of the sourdough, this was before stories, or like they, they were very new and I wasn't posting stories. I don't even know if there were stories yet. Everyone was like, wow, that looks so delicious. Do you sell that? And I was like, sell this? Like people are interested in this, like interesting, like you said, hippie dippy weird type of bread that I make. I mean, I know it's delicious, but has anybody ever heard of it? I had missed that it had become a thing. Like right. somehow between 2003 and 2017, it became popular. So I was like, nah, I never even thought about selling this. Maybe that's a good idea. I enjoy making, this is fun. Maybe I can make a few extra loaves a week and make some, you know, pocket money, whatever, selling sourdough bread. But I realized that just like making, doing what I was doing then and multiplying it didn't, wasn't efficient. So I had to figure out what the efficient way of doing this was. So my aunt actually connected me with this bakery in Israel called Papa Melach. Sure. Which makes sourdough. Yeah. So I went to Israel that um, winter. It was the last time I was there. Yes. And um, I spent a day at Papa Melach. I, I um, contacted them. I said, hey, I'm, I already bake sourdough because I know you give like workshops, but I want to come in for something a little more advanced than that. I said, sure, but you have to be willing to show up. I think it was like at 630 in the morning. I was like, okay. And when I actually did show up, they told me like one of the first people actually showed up at 30 and most people like aren't serious. I was serious enough that we left our hotel. We were staying at a hotel with like, a, we stayed for a few days at a hotel with like a breakfast, like a serious breakfast situation. And we missed that in order to, I should get to go to the bakery to work there. Um, and I stayed there for a few hours. I was only supposed to stay there for like two or three hours. But then David Katz, who it's his, it's his bakery said, you can say your help. So I stayed and I worked in the bakery with them for the rest of the day. And I learned so much because baking at home and baking on a bakery scale are two totally different things. Then I sat with him and he helped me with like the math and the figuring out there's math involved. Yes. Um, figuring out schedules and things like that. And I went home and I didn't scale up what I'm doing right now, right away. But I always had a mindset of like, I was doing it like a bakery instead of like a home baker trying to make a lot more of what I was doing already. Um, Originally, I sold like six loaves, and the next week I sold eight loaves, and the next week I sold 12 loaves, and all of a sudden I realized that there was something going here, and there was a real demand. So I had to make a decision, like, if I was really scaling up. So I did, and I ordered an oven, it took about six months to come. A few months later, I bought a big mixer. Um, by a year after I had started, I had, like, I was at a crossroads, and I had to make a decision, like you said, with your alteration like I had to make a decision like I couldn't operate the way I was because everything that I owned was on wheels like the oven the mixer the racks I kept everything on and so everything was kept in the dining room during the week but certain things had to be done in my kitchen and then everything was moved into my den for Shabbos so we could have the dining room because we make the large family meals on Shabbos and it just it, my whole house was taken over there was flour everywhere no, my kids weren't allowed in the kitchen when I was working so I had to decide what I was going to do. Was I going to open a bakery with like a cafe or something like that? We looked at a space actually, and we thought about that. It's a good thing that I did it because a year later COVID came and a lot of restaurants had a lot of trouble. Um, or was I just going to scale up and continue doing everything myself, but be much more efficient about it. We had a space in our basement that had supposed to be, was supposed to be a playroom, but my kids were outgrowing the need for playroom and just wanted, really wanted the house back. It was like semi-finished. We were using it for storage. So we turned that into my bakery. Um, took a couple of months. By the next fall, um, we had it set up. I ordered another oven, the same type I have. It's what they call a semi-professional oven. It's not a huge steam-injected bakery oven that costs $25,000, but it's also a step up from a home oven. 
So each of my ovens can bake 12 loaves. So I can bake 24 loaves at once when I run two ovens. And I bake 144 loaves a week. And that's basically what my Wednesdays and Thursdays are spent on. I spent Wednesday making the dough and shaping the loaves. They go into the refrigerator overnight and I bake them on Thursdays. So that's that, that part of my week. Those two days of my week are basically spent exclusively doing that. And the rest of my week are spent doing either garden consultations or recipe development. Um, I post on my blog, I send out emails to my email subscribers about other recipes and gardening tips and things like that. Basically, I'm really busy. <laughs> I can, I see, I know how busy you are, but also just hearing that I'm exhausted. But it's, see, what's fascinating to me is that it's so interesting how our stories track really similarly where, you know, where you kind of get to this crossroads and you have to make the decision and then you figure out a way to scale it up and then, and, and working around, you know, how your life works and, and all of that. And it's just really fascinating how what we do is different. Like the end product is very different, but a lot of times the process can be really similar. And that's why I think it's just so fascinating to talk about. Can you take me through, you said Wednesdays and Thursdays you bake. What is your schedule on a Wednesday? Because frankly, I marvel at your efficiency and I would like to give you the opportunity to lay this all out. So walk me through it, go. So really it starts Tuesday night. It takes about an hour to an hour and a half on Tuesday night where I prepare everything. So everything can be as efficient as possible on Wednesdays. I'll weigh everything out. I feed my starters. I mix together flour and water with some of my starter culture so those are ready for the next day. Then I come in a Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. And I start mixing those. I mix the first dough. Then I mix the second dough. I mean, it's obviously not one after another. It's about an hour apart. I mix, excuse me, all four doughs. When the fourth dough is resting in the mixer, it needs to rest for about half an hour after I make the dough before I finish mixing it, I start shaping the first dough because the first dough is ready to be shaped. So I'll shape that first dough. Then the buckets, the dough tubs that that first dough was in get used right after that dough is, it's not really shaped yet. It's divided and pre-shaped to get the dough out of the mixer. I use the, so, I only, so I only use, even though there's four doughs, I only use three sets of dough tubs. So I don't have it. to, this, this is much more efficient because I wash less because everything has to be efficient. And you don't have to wash it in between dough one and four, I presume. No, it's fine. They're, they're, yeah. It's flour. It's the same it's stuff. Slightly different right. mixtures, but it's the same stuff. So it leaves a tiny little bit of residue. Then it's not a problem. So then the dough, so the, that's resting. I pre-shape the first dough. It's, it has to rest for 20 minutes. During that 20 minutes, I finish, finish mixing the fourth dough and get that into the dough tubs, clean out the mixer. Then it's exactly the right time to shape the first dough and put those into the baskets. And those go on the shelf to rest before they go into the refrigerator overnight. Now, now it's time to pre-shape the second dough. Appreciate the second dough. Now have 20 minute rest. So the first thing you do is wash the dough tubs right away. Don't save it for the end of the day. Not a good idea. Then I get to sit down for about 10 minutes or eat something, which is nice because otherwise I don't have time because my schedule is very exact. Then it's time to shape the second dough and then it's time to pre-shape the third dough. You can see how the schedule goes. The same thing with the washing. So at the end of the day, I'm not left with a ton of tubs to wash. Um, everything goes in the refrigerator when it's supposed to along that way. At the end of the day, I have about 40 minutes while the last dough rests. And during that time, usually it takes less time than that. I clean the floor and I wash the last of the dough tubs. And then usually I go up and start making dinner and then come down and put those into the refrigerator. So usually it, I'm done between 4.30 and 5.30. That depends on the time of year because depending on the time of year, even though there's temperature control in my bakery, it's the starter is more active in the summer and the warmer months than the 
than in the cooler months. So in the cooler months, everything needs to sit out before it goes into the refrigerator a little longer. But either way, by 5.30, I'm done. So it's a long day, but I have created these 144 loaves sitting in the fridge for me waiting to be baked on Thursday morning. And then what happens Thursday morning? Uh, so Wednesday night, I set up the bakery after I'm done for, so I'm ready to go Thursday morning. I wake up at 5 a.m. Yes, it is very early, but for a baker, it really isn't. <laughs> if you speak to people who have actual real bakeries, which I almost had, well, almost, I decided not to have, five in the morning, why are you waking up so late? You wake up at two and you start your work. That's part of the reason I didn't do that because that did not work with my lifestyle. I wanted to be able to be around for my kids. Even though I'm working in the bakery, it's in the house. I'm there in the morning. I talk to them. By the time they come home from school, I'm done. I'm, I'm available for them. My kids are older. They don't need as much physical care, but they need me still. They need to talk to me. They need me to be there for them. And if I ran an actual bakery, first of all, I couldn't just say I'm only working two days a week. Right. I would have, in order to pay my overhead, I would have to work every single day and bake a lot more. And then I have employees to pay and I'd be responsible to them and have to be there to supervise them. Um, I made the decision not to do that. Um, so, and, but five in the morning, I have to wake up then because if it's later, then the bread just doesn't get, it's not ready at a time that makes sense for people right. to be able to buy it. Um, so I start at five and I bake for 12 hours because I have 144 loaves and I can bake 24, it's not 12 hours, I'm sorry. I start at five and I bake for six hours because I have 144 loaves and I can bake 24 at a time. And so I'm done by, 11 yeah 11 then everything needs to cool for about an hour and then from 12 till 12 31 I pack everything up and then what I used to do is before before COVID when I first started this with the system is I used to then go do the deliveries I deliver I sell a large amount of it wholesale to a store a local um, supermarket um, called Evergreen in Muncie in my area and um, so the wholesale order has to be delivered and any deliveries to my customers who live around that area, I would do home deliveries then also. Um, and then I would go home and then I would finish packing up everything else and get ready for people to pick up in the late afternoon from me. And it was just exhausting and it wasn't working anymore. And I, I felt like I was at my breaking point and I, I just, it didn't work. Then COVID happened and my husband was home a lot more because he does work for himself, but he used to have to go in to the city, he works in New York City. Um, he has to go into the city agencies for his work. He used to have to go in like two or three times a week, but all of a sudden everything was remote. So he didn't have to. So he's able to take off for about two hours on Thursday and he, I'm done, everything's packed up. He takes everything and he does the deliveries and I go to sleep. I take a nap from like 1.30 until about 4.30 and then I can be human. <laughs> <laughs> when my kids come home and I can cook dinner and I can talk to them and have a like, 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 like I said, with babies, as long as you take care of them, they're fine. But with bigger kids, you have to have an actual conversation where you understand what they're saying and what you say makes sense. And if without sleep, I, I some people can, I can't survive without sleep. Do you so find I that the way that you, I'm, it, it sounds like the way that you've needed to be there for your kids as they've gotten older, we should say your oldest is I think 19, 20. 19, 19. Um, as you know, the, it, like, do you think that you could have done this when they were smaller? Like when oh, they were babies? Not. No way. Not a chance. The sewing I was able to do in those days, I did different sewing things. It was more dual because the schedule was much more flexible. Like if I couldn't do it now, cause they were crankier, they needed a diaper change or they needed to go to be taken to the doctor or whatever it was, then I could do it later. 
but the bakery is, is so scheduled. If I don't stick to the schedule, the dough doesn't wait for anyone. So right. now my kids are, even if they're home for some reason, during the time I'm doing this, most of the time they are in school, they understand I'm busy with the donut. You want to talk to me at the same time? That's fine. But if you need me to come shopping with you or look at something online or um, figure out what's wrong with your shoe or whatever the problem is, just thinking like of examples in the last 24 <laughs> hours, um, it has to wait. And they understand that. But I need to be there for them. Like when I used to sew, I used to stay up super late and do things. And I used to be exhausted all the time and not necessarily able to have a coherent conversation at all times and they don't care when they're toddlers honestly as long as you're there to do things for them but you need to be able to think more with older kids so definitely I couldn't have done it then at this stage in my life it works for me will it always work for me I don't know right now it's working for me I don't plan to be doing the like I don't have the plans to be doing this the bakery part of what I do forever because first of all it's very hard on my body it is exhausting work it's very physical um but right now I'm doing it and I enjoy it Okay. And as long as it's, as long as it's working, it's working. The, what is something that you think that like, okay, so not everyone, and I put myself in this category. Um, I'm not going to get chickens. I'm not going to start, you know, I live in a New York city apartment. I'm not going to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm not attempting sourdough. It's not happening. Even I never went through the sourdough phase of COVID just didn't, just didn't hit me. Um, and but let's say I still want to be a little bit more connected to where my food comes from or how it grows or just how this stuff gets actually made. What is something that everyone can do to implement that in their life to just feel a little bit more connected to where their food comes from? Well, first of all, I feel, and maybe I'm like tooting my own horn a little bit too much, just by watching what I'm doing. And if you never do it yourself, you never grow anything, you're automatically more connected because I have people who tell me that they're very invested in seeing like how something is going to grow. Like I planted saffron bolt. I'm trying again for the second time last year. It was not successful to grow saffron crocuses. Like they're invested in that and they're excited about that. They didn't have to do anything themselves. All they did was watch me do it and they're a part of it. And they ask me questions. I'm happy to answer. And I feel like all my followers are a part of what I'm doing and a part of what I do and why I share it is to help everyone be more connected. But there are things that you can do yourself. One of those things is to one of those things is to pay attention and try to eat more seasonally. Think about trying to buy like more winter squash, like butternut squash in the winter, and try to find tomatoes that are grown locally to you in the summer and eat those and enjoy those. And think about what's seasonal and when you go shopping and when you cook and when you plan your menus. Um, that's one example of something that you can do. Um, another example is you can try to grow something yourself, even if it's not a full garden. If you have access to the outdoors and a space to put one or two planters, then ask me, I'm happy to help you. That's not, when I do a garden consultation, that's not the same thing as if somebody asks me one or two questions, I'm happy to answer them. That's not, when somebody has a lot of questions that need hand, you know, hand-holding and guidance, that's what the garden consultation is about. But I'm happy to help anybody if they want to grow one or two things and they need advice about what type of planter and where to put it, et cetera. Um, I think even just by growing one thing, even if you don't do it every year, you just feel more of a connection. That's awesome. One question that popped into my head. If, um, when you like buy organic stuff at a grocery store, does that mean that it's like grown locally and stuff like that? Or just that it's like pesticide free? Like, what is that? Cause all I know is that it's more expensive. So like, what does it actually, what does it mean when something is organic? So to call something organic, you need to follow a certain, um, protocol set out by the government. It's like, it's a labeling law thing. Um, and you need to only spray with organic 
pesticides. Yes, they're still sprayed just with things that are called organic pesticides and use certain types of fertilizer that you're allowed to use. They're very strict things like how, what you're allowed, it's a more expensive way of growing because the products that they have to use are more expensive and the seeds they have to buy are more expensive. Um, that's why they're more expensive. Oh, go figure. See, you and they can be grown anywhere. They don't necessarily need to grow close to you. They can be grown very far away as long as you follow whatever you need to follow in order to meet those standards that are called organic. They aren't necessarily even better for you. I, or they don't necessarily even taste better. But that, that's why the more, that there are certain things I haven't have found that organic sweet potatoes do taste better than non-organic sweet potatoes, generally, not always. Um, I'm thinking it's more of the variety that they're growing might be a better tasting variety and it's mm. more expensive maybe because it produces less per plant maybe it's more pest resistant like a lot of times the organic um, growers will grow varieties that are more pest resistant so they don't need to spray as many things but they're still spraying they're just spraying with things that are cold organic and honestly those sprays are still can be toxic to the person spraying them just as much as the um sprays that are sprayed on non-organic produce the amount of residue that's left on either organic or non-organic is very, it's government, it's controlled by the government and it's very minuscule and is not really an issue. I'm not, I'm not a huge proponent of spending a lot of money on organic produce and much rather see people buy more produce than spend the money they have on more expensive produce. Um, eating fruits and vegetables. They're delicious. That. They're good for you. They're delicious. <laughs> I hear that. That, that makes sense. This has been really, really fun and I've learned so much. And I'm not going to start growing things now, but it, but I will I will feel a little bit more connected to the things that that I'm buying. If somebody wants to learn more about Yohova or what you do, where can they go? Uh, um, on Instagram, homegrown kosher on Instagram. That's where I that's where I show up most often. Um, I put, do stories every day. I put I've been putting out reels lately. I find that people really like those short form video that they can watch at any time, as opposed to the stories which expire after 24 hours. I sometimes post recipes. I post recipes and garden tips on my blog. So you can check me out there at homegrowncosher.com. I have an email list. Um, if someone is not necessarily the type to show up on social media, I send out an email about once a month, just giving a synopsis of what I've been up to and links to any recipes that I put out and information about something I've been doing. Um, I'm on TikTok also as Homegrown Kosher. I'm pretty new there. The content I'm putting out there is different than on Instagram. On Instagram, most of what I'm putting out is more educational and informative. And on TikTok, it's more leaning towards the entertaining. It's because it's a different demographic, but it's fun because like people ask me, why are you on TikTok? Because the demographic is younger and I want to get them young. I want people of all ages to be connected to where their food comes from. Even if they're not going to grow anything now or cook anything now, they'll have it in their mind for one day when they do, because everyone grows up eventually. I love that. That's eventually, right? Whether we like it or not. Um, that I love that. That's awesome. Last thing I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show to you, Ahuva Gadiner, what does it mean to make an impact? Oh boy, I should have thought about this. You knew it was coming. I know you listened to I the show. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I, listened to almost, I think every single episode. That is a really good question. I guess that making an impact would be that everyone thinks about where their food comes from when they eat it and they realize and they appreciate it more. That would be having everyone having that in mind. If everyone, if I could get everyone in the world before they take a bite of their food to realize like, hey, a farmer had to actually grow this. And to think about when it's raining, like 
it's a good thing because we're going to have food from this and the sun is shining. Also, I, I think that would be making an impact if I could get, I mean, I wish I could reach everyone in the world. I'm reaching to people who follow me right now or read my blog, but if I could reach, the more people I can reach, I've made an impact on them. Every single person that I have educated and informed that entertained even just by watching what I'm doing, I've made an impact on them. I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Ahuva and Homegrown Kosher, her links are in the show notes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 12 people listed by Oragu Note as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant dash parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Drift Giedsquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.